0: All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin, and today we're going to be talking about something different. Um, this is very important into the world of pain, which is definitely the world that I came from uh, when I started this podcast, and this has to do with prescription drugs, in particular the strong painkillers in the class known as opioid medications, also called narcotic medications, and ones that you may have heard or been familiar with are things like OxyContin. Vicodin um, and medications and that type. What people don't know, or at least not everybody does, it's getting more and more press, is that we have begun for years now escalating the number of prescriptions that we're doing. In fact, over the years of between 1999 and 2008, we increased the rate of prescriptions by four times. I mean, a quadrupled the amount of prescriptions that we are writing for these very strong medications. Parallel with that, we also increased the number of overdose deaths. Quadrupled the number of overdoses along that same time frame, and we increase the rate of people going into substance abuse treatment facilities for this medication by six times in that same time frame. The amount of this medication that is in the United States alone is astronomical. We're 4% of the world's population. We're consuming over 80% of the world's opioid supplies, and 99% of the hydrocodone, which is the ingredient is found in Vicodin, which is also the number one prescribed medication in the United States. Um, Concurrent with this is there's a lot of debate right now in the pain world about opioids and pain and whether they're appropriate or not. And one of the terms that gets dallied around quite a bit is this term called pseudo addiction. And so I have on here today Dr. Andrew Chambers. He is the associate professor of psychiatry at Indiana University where he directs the addiction psychiatry fellowship program. He did his medical school at Duke University, followed by a residency at Yale University, as well as a fellowship there, and then subsequently a second fellowship in addiction psychiatry at Indiana Univ- University, where he now teaches residents and fellows, psychiatrists who are training to become addiction psychiatrists as well. A very, very important topic. Um, the term pseudo-addiction, we're going to explain a little bit more. But Dr. Chambers, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Could you just briefly describe... What pseudo addiction is supposed to be?
1: Well, pseudo addiction is a term that was coined uh, in about 1989, uh, based on a, a case report. I think what the authors of the concept uh, were trying to focus on is that there are times when people, you know, need pain relief, uh, but Uh, doctors could be wary of prescribing them opiates um, for fear of creating or worsening addiction. And indeed, it could be the case that someone could, um, you know, be asking for pain relief with an opiate, um, but the fear of creating an addiction or worsening addiction would keep the doctor from prescribing, you know, an opiate for the pain. So I think that the idea is that, well, Let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and create a, a diagnosis of pseudo addiction, where it means that someone could look like they're drug seeking, as if they have addiction, but when you have the term pseudo addiction, you're basically with a, with the term itself ruling out. You know, pseudo meaning false or fake. You're essentially ruling out the diagnosis of addiction that gives you sort of the room then to go ahead and prescribe the opioid, opioid which you which you think is uh you know which the prescriber would think would be important for for addressing the pain so in general it's you know in general it's a term uh to sort of give a prescriber for someone who wants to uh, treat pain room um just with the very term itself to to treat the pain without worrying about addiction
0: yeah, and um, there, there's a time frame there, like you said. That that case report, you mentioned, came out in 1989, and there was a sort of overflow late 80s into the 90s, where there was this idea that, um, particularly in the physician community, or at least proposed by some people, that pain was rampant, and that as doctors, we were letting all these people writhe around in misery because we weren't prescribing opioids. Is it, you know that I some of the things that that I've done are uh, right. talking about that a little bit more. And uh, if, just to kind of clarify here for, for the audience who may not be physicians, um, what this then is it took away the sort of fear from the physician's standpoint of prescribing a very strong drug for pain and not just the pain that it had been used for previously. Can't, people in cancer at the end of life, people who had just had a surgery, people who had been in, in traumatic accidents with broken bones, but really to other people with chronic pain. We're talking things like back pain. Other headaches and things like that. Is that is that the case?
1: That's uh, very well said.
0: Okay. In um, parallel with that, could you just kind of tell us what happened since 1989? Then, at least your experience in the and even in the addiction world, what have you seen with these medications since then?
1: Right. Well, you know, I think that your introduction uh, framed it very well. You know, and and people have kind of tracked uh, these prescriptions. You know, the types of pills, the number of prescriptions uh, as they've been growing really since, you know, the mid-90s through the 2000s. And, of course, um, in the year 2000, uh, there was an effort to uh, frame pain as a vital sign, um, which is a a pretty striking thing to do. In the the modern history of medicine, we've always had four, you know, key vital signs, um, blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, and respiratory rate. Um, these are time-honored vital signs that have been a core part of our, our tradition in medicine. And uh, suddenly pain um, becomes a fifth vital sign. And what, what is kind of um, already a little bit of a unusual aspect of that becoming a vital sign is that the other four traditional vital signs are you know, imminently measurable so that if different expert uh, different professionals measure um those uh you know those vitals they get the same number whereas pain um you can't measure it you can only rely on what the patient says so what we'll say is the other traditional four vital signs are objective that is we can measure it um and the fifth vital sign as it was termed in, in about the year 2000 Pain is not measurable. It's strictly what the patient says it is. So um, it this became a bit of a uh, you know I get I guess in, in medicine you know that there, there's a, a gray zone between what becomes a fad and what becomes you know the core the canon of, of medical practice you know there's a big gray zone there and I, I suppose it's fair to say that whether pain is a is actually a real vital sign or not at least enter deep into that gray zone. Um, so a lot of people uh, took it hook, line, and sinker, and others uh, might not have been um, too much in favor of it, but didn't really resist it. You know. And so at the same time, uh, around that time, um, JACO, which is the uh, American nonprofit organization that basically accredits hospitals and clinics, it stands for the Joint Commission, um, you know, essentially made it a real priority also to uh, make sure that healthcare professionals and doctors of all kinds were diagnosing pain, identifying pain and diagnosing it, and really raised it to the level, you know, of a vital sign. Um, so now you sort of have this regulatory agency um, adopt this policy that, that, that could put a lot of pressure on all sectors of healthcare to make sure that pain was being attended to at the level of a vital sign. And what what is, you know, I think, uh, retrospectively, what we can say is that, unfortunately, the um, you know, wh- whether pain ought to be treated or, or focused on is one issue, but the other problem is that, you know, at that time and, and still much to today, the only major treatment modality for that type of chief complaint of pain is opioids. So um, there wasn't much allowance for a whole host of other means to treat pain other than a focus on opioids uh, as, as the primary frontline tool. So I think that, um, you know, a, a combination of, you know, historical elements, uh, you, you know, Probably the the advent of the of the term pseudo addiction and its adop, adoption in many sectors of healthcare, uh, along with this emphasis on pain, its prioritization is a vital sign, almost as a human right, that pain control you know is a, is a key part of medicine, a human right if you will. And then finally, um, you know, big pharma, um, the companies that make opioids, having a lot of interest in making sure these drugs are uh, sold in high quantities and attached to this new emphasis on pain and uh, you know there's a couple other things going on too we might talk about in a minute but these are some of the key ingredients that in my, in my view have led to the um current uh, iatrogenic opioid epidemic
0: yeah and I, and I i think it's important to emphasize the you know just like you sort of mentioned that this term pseudo addiction which we're going to go into a little bit more came really from a single case report the information that Jayco was using when they sort of mandated this subjective, you know, this report, which is pain, something that is that is completely different between you, me, and everybody else. Everybody's pain is is inherently different because of the nature it's processing and how our brains and how we think about these things, um, up to that level of, the, what you said, objective vital sign. But the evidence that was used for it was really negligible. And that we mandate this this new report and really sort of throw it into the mix where now uh, you know hospitals were being graded on it and uh, i mean there's i don't want to go into it too much but the right. you know the, the effects that we've seen where they you know once the hospital instituted JCO, the fifth vital sign and the amount of just respiratory events that they had practically overnight in the hospitals there right um but I, I'm going through your paper, and I'm going to link to the show notes, folks. This is a, a fantastic review of pseudo addiction that I'm going to have on the website called Pseudo Addiction Factor" or "Fiction and in Investigation of the Medical Liter- Literature" by Dr. Chambers and Dr. Green. And but one of the things that I that I got out of your paper here uh, was really kind of interesting when you you said in that case report how um, they inverted the traditional usage of iatrogenic. Iatrogenic really meaning um, harm from the doctor or harm from the healthcare system. Uh, has caused you know. Usually, the traditional term was iatrogenic as a harm caused by medical intervention. In right. pseudo addiction, iatrogenic harm was described as being caused by withholding treatment of opioids, not by providing it.
1: Right, right. Yeah. That,
0: that struck me as well. Well, and the fact that that somehow it, it, it now it you know. Physicians are supposed to first and foremost do no harm, and now somehow, because of our inaction, we're causing harm. And I think that's an important mind shift that really struck me when you wrote when you had that 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 uh, passage in your article there.
1: I would agree that that was uh, striking. Also, when we uh, found that in the early literature around pseudo addiction, that that was actually embedded in the creation of the concept. Uh, and I'd actually I've never seen that before. You know, usually. When there's a pathology that the doctor doesn't um, act on, that's just the natural pathology, mm-hmm. right? Um, but they were really calling that iatrogenic. So the lack of action, um, and you know, a- again, I think what's surprising is I don't know of anybody that kind of questioned that at that time. You know, why why is that version of iatrogenic kind of the opposite conceptually of how we've traditionally used that term? you know, in, in medicine.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So with pseudo addiction then, and uh, you know, I, I can just speak from my own education, remember learning about pseudo addiction and, and how it was such a, a very important part. You want to make sure that you weren't, you were treating people effectively because we were always concerned about this idea of pseudo addiction, that we weren't giving people enough medications or, you know, other things. You know, I was trained in the injections and things like that. Um, right. And that term then became rampant rampantly used in training programs. Could you just go over a little bit when you were doing that review of, of what the research actually demonstrated when you're looking at pseudo addiction? Like what was actually substantial or stamp- substantiated by like research?
1: Well, you know, in this, in this review, of course, our goal was to try to do our best to capture all of the literature on the topic um, that, you know, substantially addressed it. And to sort of categorize that literature according to you know papers that uh, tested the tested the disease model of pseudo addiction. you know te- you know d- does it fit? Does the idea of pseudo addiction actually fit the traditional di- disease model? How do you diagnose it? How do you treat it? How do you prove it's there? Because you know, as you're describing, it, the, the concept really, kind of, as it was taking off, took on its its own air of being its own diagnosis. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a diagnosis that people would make in order to treat pain and avoid being worried about uh, the concept of addiction. So we we began to, you know, exhaustively look at this literature and, uh, you know, we, we kept looking and kept looking. And, of course, there are papers, you know, there was the initial case report that, you know based on on a on one patient that uh described the concept of pseudo addiction and there were other papers in the literature that elaborated on it it conceptually or as a diagnosis but you know lo and behold at no point did we find a paper in the literature that actually use used the scientific method uh the you know that's traditional in medicine to uh, confirm that it, it it actually exists as a diagnosis that's separate from other existing diagnoses. That uh, that it um, has a has a unique pathophysiology, or that it um, you know is treatable uh, in a way that um, validates its its construct validity. You know that it has a specific treatment that differs from other diagnoses. So. We really didn't find any, you know, empirical evidence to substantiate that it actually exists despite, you know, it occupying a pretty substantial, you know, as you said, a very substantial footprint in the medical literature, you know, really spanning many different types of journals, uh, many different disciplines. Um, so uh, I, I think it was uh, pretty, pretty revealing um, to us, that, you know, it's a great example, again, of how sometimes in, in healthcare, uh, you know, which I think the public um, assumes that, you know, we are scientifically based, that's our tradition, and, but, you know, there there are um, things that can really take off. There are fads and fashions that can really take off, you know, in our healthcare system that, you know, unfortunately are being driven by uh, other, you know, other dynamics.
0: Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of-
1: what we concluded,
0: yeah. And I'm I just gonna go through some specifics here because I think it's so important that you, you, you guys, and correct me if I'm wrong. You went through 224 published papers that identified this term or talked about this term of pseudo addiction, and out of all of those papers, there were none that attempted to empirically validate that concept of pseudo addiction. Basically, this was a hypothesis placed forth that, has, that was not tested, uh, and was really not validated in any scientific manner. If, if I'm reading that correctly.
1: I think that's right. That's and that's what we concluded
0: from in the, our view of it. And the other part that I that I thought was fascinating, you kind of touched on these other outside topics here, and I think I've done an episode on this as well. But when you looked at all of those papers, there are only eighteen that, that provide a supportive elaboration that really took this idea and then built from it. And of those, um, you know, twelve that really were supportive of that concept, of which over thirty percent were were funded by pharmaceutical companies.
1: That's right. Um, you know, where where you know, typically, uh, in, in modern times, um, it's been recognized that the pharmaceutical industry, of course, has a huge influence on uh, the medical literature because they've had so much capital to invest in the investigators and the, and the research that drives uh, what appears in the medical literature. So you know we we all know that we accept it. Um, It's it's kind of a necessity. Um, At the same time, um, it does introduce some degree of bias, and that's also been studied. You know, it's it's pretty obvious to to most people that you know if your if your research is supported by a company that stands to make profit, and they're paying you to do the research, that's more likely your conclusions will be in line, um, you know, with the company's interests, and so. We also looked at, um, you know, this body of literature um, and, you know, found that either the authors at some point or the papers themselves were, um, you know, funded by uh, pharmaceutical companies um, and most of that, you know, in fact, I think all of it uh, aligned itself with papers that were really propagating and supporting the idea uh, of pseudo addiction and supporting the conversation about pseudo addiction and, uh, you know, it's no coincidence, uh, in my view, that um, these uh, pharmaceutical companies also were major makers of opioid medications.
0: Yeah, and I think you even listed that half of those uh, the, the studies that were funded by pharmaceutical companies were funded by Purdue Pharma, which was the creator of OxyContin, who had an unbelievable marketing com- campaign. I mean, it's just uh, brilliant in the scope of how they did it, but absolutely horrendous in the effects that it had in the particular pain world. Yes. Um, now, one of the other things I th- I thought was interesting is um, you you talked about how they discriminated between pseudo addiction. So you use criteria from the DSM-4, which was the really the psychiatry manual before the DSM-5, um, stating that the difference between pseudo addiction and addiction came through from the criteria. There was the criteria were exactly the same. The only difference was that if there was a context of pain, then that criteria, then that it was deemed pseudo addiction versus if there was no pain, then it was somehow quote unquote true addiction. Um, Has that changed substantially with the DSM-5 now?
1: Well, um, let me say that the criteria for addiction has pretty much remained the same in the DSM-5. There are some subtle changes, but for the most part, uh, addiction uh, and how we diagnose it has not changed from four to five. Um, and, and again, um, you know, there, there is no pseudo addiction in the DSM five or four, you know, it's never been, uh, part of the formal psychiatric diagnostical diagnostic criteria. So, um, I, and I, and I think what you're pointing out also, you know, when we were researching this paper, Marion and I, um, we, we were pretty surprised, you know, uh, of, that, of that finding, um, that there are papers that are actually attempting to incorporate DSM-5 criteria for addiction in the definition, in the, in the clinical characterization of pseudo addiction. We were really surprised. We thought that was pretty, pretty audacious and, and strange in a way.
0: So, I'm going to read another part of your paper here. Um, I, do, I know there are some physicians that listen to this podcast, and I, I highly recommend to you, if you have any interest in pain, to read it because this is I. I just my highlights and my notes alone pretty much kind of overwhelmed it. But there was a passage here where I was talking about pseudo addiction as a social phenomenon that I thought was particularly important, where you said, and I'm quoting here, here, by defining pseudo addiction, the need for pain treatment as distinct from addiction, which is compulsive, harmful use. There is a separation between the natural consequences of proper use of opioid medications by legitimate patients from those with addiction. The distinction between addiction and pseudo-addiction is viewed as problematic since it requires differential, ethical, and clinical responses to separate out bad drug-seeking addicts from good, undertreated pain patients in the face of behaviors that are virtually indistinguishable. Um, Right. I mean— That that I mean, it, it's just it's just fascinating because we're now we're judging. Right. right. Who, who's right. got valid? Who, who who's the who's the valid person here that we're going to give this medication to? Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, I think it's just it's yeah. just, you know, un- unbelievable. And then the second at the end of the same paragraph here, in essence, pseudo addiction is understood as the social judgment of blame on the physician for not giving opioids to patients when they should. While addiction is blame put on the patient and wanting opioids when they should not.
1: Exactly.
0: Unbelievable. Un- yeah, unbelievable. It, it is. It is.
1: Yeah. I, <laughs> well, and, and
0: I, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to kind of go off topic here just from your addiction perspective I, is um, you know that addiction is a very complex process. Um, yeah. I'm not exactly understanding. I don't know why we don't fund, we don't treat it like a, we don't want to fund treatment for addiction when we know that there is so much to it that deserves treatment, we sort of ignore it and somehow it's the failure of the individual that they're an addict versus anything else. Right. And um, you know, I, I, I was listening to something else the other day and there was some idea that with addiction there's there's a pain component as well. Where there's you know, people who have addiction are in some some cases maybe actually medicating something else, either traumatic life events or a traumatic whatever the case may be. In that somehow it's it's in some ways that there's some underlying, quote unquote, pain that the addiction is is sort of covering, Mm -hmm. um, which is the same thing as what we would call with pseudo addiction. They're they're pursuing something to satisfy a craving or to medicate or feel better, feel kind of uh, take away the suffering component of some aspect of their mm-hmm. lives. And I would really like your, your perspective on that. You know, obviously I'm right. an addictionologist. Yeah,
1: thank, thank you for, for taking taking, taking it in that direction. Cause I think that's, you know, you're, you're tapping into uh, some really important material, you know, so I actually came um, at this topic of pseudo addiction from the standpoint of trying to understand, you know, both as a researcher and a clinician, Uh, Trying to understand the connection between mental illness and drug addiction. Uh, And the work that we've done, uh, you know, in the laboratory setting as well as clinically over the last decade or so suggests um, that what's happened in mental illness is that the circuits that are impacted by different forms of major mental illness, um, and that, you know, probably spans schizophrenia post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, major depression, some of the personality disorders, that the circuit abnormalities that occur in these types of mental illnesses also involuntarily affect the structures in the brain that respond to addictive drugs. So in other words, the mental illnesses that we so commonly see that go along with a substance use disorders that are so comorbid with substance use disorders, a major dynamic that could be causing that comorbidity is likely a, a overflow of the brain disease of mental illness into the circuits that where addiction happens, and so addiction is more likely to take root in a person with mental illness than it is a healthy brain. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, so, so on, on one level, it might look as if people with mental illness are pursuing, you know, uh, addictive drugs uh, as a means of self-medication, but lo and, the, lo and behold, you know, what, we, what what seems to be more accurate way to understand it is that their likelihood of becoming addicted to those substances is greater um, and, and in fact, when they use those substances, it actually makes their mental illness worse, not better. So it's not it's not really, you know, we think it, it may not be accurate to say they're self-medicating with those drugs, they're, that they're self-medicating a mental illness as much as it is that they're more prone to becoming addicted to those drugs. And then in fact, when they use those drugs in an addiction pattern, that drug use makes their mental illnesses not better, mm-hmm. like a medication would, but worse. And so I, you know, I I think that tying it back to, um, you know, the pain question, there are a couple things going on. One is that we also know that a lot of mental illnesses, especially major depression, which is very common, and post-traumatic stress disorder, both of those types of mental illness probably do involve a uh, pathological change in... um, pain thresholds you know they they you know some people have even suggested that major depression and chronic pain could be very similar if not the same thing in some respects so here you're talking about um, you know post-traumatic stress disorder uh, major depression chronic pain being you know perhaps overlapping forms of psychopathology at the level of the brain but also conditions that actually, make you more vulnerable to addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, if uh, we, you know, and, and that that kind of bears out, because people with chronic pain and, and, and comorbid mental illnesses tend to have uh, addictions to other drugs besides opioids. You know, you'll see it with nicotine, you'll see it with alcohol, there are other drugs in the picture. So it seems like the overlap is much more about addiction than it is whether a particular drug actually relieves pain. So I think, um, you know, when you go back to the the specifics around opioids, the other, you know, confounding factor is that the longer you're on opioids, the more likely, you know, any anyone would experience a phenomenon called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So that the the real um, unfortunate uh, possibility with chronic use of opioids is that you actually could acquire a long-term pain problem uh, instead of uh, being in a situation where you're actually dispensing with a short-term pain problem with that medication. So I think this, this, you know, the, these relationships between mental illness and chronic pain and addiction and opiates are very complex. And you know, multidirectional. But the, but the, the at the bottom line, at the end of the day, if you have the mental illness, if you have chronic pain, and you're on chronic opioids, uh, your trajectory is more likely going to be in a negative direction as opposed to a positive direction.
0: Sort of feeding into the pathology in a negative manner. Exactly. Yeah, and and it's I think it's important from a from a pain standpoint as a pain specialist is those same areas that just just as you said I'm just going to emphasize this the same areas that are involved with a lot of these these mental illnesses anxiety depression etc you said post traumatic stress as well as addiction are the same areas that light up when we're looking at chronic pain brain so I I I'm, I'm just sitting here nodding my head when you go through that because yeah. what we're finding is this complex dynamic between multiple different conditions. And which were in a lot of ways feeding, you know, this this medication that is worsening the problem. And that's what we've seen clinically. I mean, yeah. when, when you escalate the, the amount of opioid prescriptions, you know, quadruple it in a 10-year in a period, and all we see, we, we're not seeing substantial functional gains on these on anybody with opioids. And the no. frustration that I find from it, and I've asked multiple experts at talks and things, is in the medical Pain side, we love to say, well, yes, you have to be cautious about these drugs, but when you prescribe them, it's always, but when you prescribe them, but yeah. we don't know who they're good for other than acute, you know, if someone's got acute nociceptive component where there's some sort of trauma and tissue, t- tissue damage involved, post-surgical right. pain, et cetera, or, or cancer where you have an, an evolving tissue mass where they're right. kind of doing that stuff.
1: Right. So
0: I, 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 and I even talked to somebody about that the other day and I'm like, well, we don't know who these medications are good for when it comes to chronic pain, but we do know that we're causing substantial harm. Why are we doing this? Yeah. And uh, it didn't really get a satisfactory answer to that. (laughs) No, but um, you know, there, there was another, you know, I just want to end You had so much brilliant stuff. This, this paper was just, I was just reading it and uh, I just, it was just amazing. Well, that's
1: great. I, I really appreciate hearing that from you.
0: Yeah. And in your conclusion, there was a couple, couple key things here. I just want to pull out again. You know, one, the renaming of pain with a term that essentially means fake addiction and serves to d- dismiss addiction as part of the clinical diagnosis is a construct that is conspicuously and uniquely attached to opioid therapies, which are extremely addictive analgesics, among many other effective ev- evidence-based strategies for analgesia that are far less addictive. So in the non-medical speak is basically we've termed, made this you know this term of fake addiction um, that we can now... Pre- allows us in some ways, gives a physician permission or in, not even permission, actually promotes the prescription of a drug that is an addictive drug uh, at the expense of other evidence-based strategies for analgesia that are less addictive. And when it comes to chronic pain, a lot of those evidence-based strategies, particularly ones that we don't know don't worsen the problem, are things like cognitive behavioral therapies, you know, the behavioral interventions or lifestyle interventions, yeah and that has come the funding for those has come with the cost of funding for something that is causing quite a bit of harm correct so and then the last piece i just want to come here and i really like your com- your comments on this one is um, where you just made this comment and that research should also examine the extent to which the concept may serve as a way for some providers to apply, apply the diagnostic label of pain to legitimize opioid use in a, quote, end quote, good patients, and in some cases to secure reimbursement and avoid regulatory scrutiny of opioid treatment in these patients so that they do not have to deal with the, quote, end quote, bad opioid addicts for whom opioid maintenance treatment is highly regulated, time-demanding, stigmatized, and uncovered by insurance. And when I read that, what I've seen, particularly right now, we're seeing all this push for Suboxone therapy. Suboxone is a new wonderful thing. and um, But nobody... Or I should say everybody dances around this concept of what we're treating with it. So, for those of you in the audience, Suboxone is a, um, it has some similarity to these strong opioid painkillers, uh, fits on the same receptors, but it only partially activates them. It is FDA approved for the treatment of addiction, um, and yet is being used now more for pain in this way that people who are on these opioid therapies, many of whom, again, we placed them on these therapies, the idea being that we're not, that, we, that they can't come off these medications, which I don't agree with, um, that we're going to replace them on this new medication, Suboxone, and we're somehow treating them for maintenance of pain, though that's not really true, but we're, so, but we're not really treating them there for addiction. I, 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 if from your standpoint, I would just, where do you find this, this kind of hazy ground where people are using Suboxone for quote-unquote pain, but you're, they're using sort of this addiction protocol where we're just maintaining them on it for perpetuity?
1: Well, yeah, thanks for asking. That's another awesome um, question. And, you know, again, I think this gets back to one of your very first comments in the podcast about, you know, our healthcare system still being unwilling to embrace the treatment of addiction and for, you know, including the reimbursement for it and and training of the right number of experts and how to treat it. And so what we see with Suboxone that, you know, disturbs me quite a bit, you have to realize um, the, the great irony that you know, in, in the U.S., um, uh, in in most states, uh, you can prescribe Suboxone if you diagnose opioid addiction um, for a certain number of patients. If you have a special DEA waiver, um, which you know you can acquire uh, through a, a brief eight-hour training, you can you know a physician can prescribe Suboxone and in turn, the, the treatment of addiction with Suboxone um, will be covered by insurance, uh, you know, uh, if you've if you uh, have diagnosed addiction and you have the um, the Suboxone waiver as a physician. Um, but you know, uh, it's pretty arduous to actually get the insurance companies to. Support the treatment. Uh, a lot of companies put roadblocks up with a process called prior authorization, where you actually have to call uh, a uh, insurance company member. Sometimes you have to write essays and spend a lot of time on the phone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's government regulation and roadblocks that are that are put up uh, to curtail the use of this medication for opioid addiction. On the other hand, um, if you prescribe it for pain um, and just that's your indication of pain, well, you don't really then have to, um, uh, you know, you don't have to have a DEA waiver to do that. So uh, ironically, if you prescribe it for an FDA indication for which it's approved, which is not improved, i.e. pain, um, you really don't have to have any kind of um, limit on how many patients you, uh, prescribe it for, um, and that, you know, that, again, that really creates problems. So if, you, if a, a given physician, you know, I've heard of this happening many times, currently in the United States, uh, a physician can only prescribe Suboxone for 100 people who have opiate addiction. But what a lot of people end up doing is as soon as, think people, as soon as they think they're getting above that limit, they just change the diagnosis and the chart to pain so they can get beyond that limit without getting into legal trouble. Um, the, the, one thing about that is a lot of insurance companies won't pay for Suboxone for pain, but you know, the drug is in such high demand that a lot of patients will be willing to pay, you know, several hundred a month out of pocket, um, to acquire this drug. So, you know, that's just one example of some of the, uh, mess that's occurred with, you know, these double standards around the reimbursement, um, and the regulation, you know, I think an even better example, if, if, if I can just take a moment, um. That throws this into contrast. And this is, you know, what's going on in Indiana. And Indiana is representative, I think, of many, many, if not most states. Um, so I practice in Indiana, so I'm, I'm on top of the scene here pretty well. So in Indiana, um, you can prescribe methadone for pain with virtually no regulation, uh, no monitoring by the government whatsoever. And it's covered by insurance, and your appointment can be covered, okay? And on the other hand, if, if you prescribe methadone for addiction, uh, which, which it is approved for, um, then that the patient has to be in a highly controlled and highly regulated methadone treatment program. The patient has to pay out of pocket uh, 400 four to $500 a month. And there is zero health insurance coverage for that treatment. So that's a great example of what I was talking about where, uh, you know, what patient wouldn't under these circumstances prefer to frame their addiction as pain when they can go to a doctor and have their insurance company pay for it and only have to see that doctor once a month for their methadone prescription if they call it pain. Whereas if they call it addiction, now they have to pay entirely out of pocket, sometimes up to five to six hundred dollars a month. They have to show up every morning, sometimes at six a.m. in the fr- in the snow, literally, <laughs> every day to get their dose. So it's a it's a you know it's a real mess. Um, it's a it's a, it's all a. Um, I think, again, a failure of our healthcare system and insurance companies with along with it to recognize that addictions are legitimate uh, brain-based diseases, just like pain is. Um, and and these are, it's just creating more more problems for us.
0: And, and I, I want to just, i was just thinking about here, someone's listening to this, um, because there is this whole connotation with, there's this negative connotation when it comes to addiction. And I want to yeah. make sure that when, you know, when we're, we're talking here, and if you're listening to this, what we're not saying is that everybody with pain is an addict. We're also, if you have chronic pain, it does not mean you are, an, you are an addict. If you are an addict, it doesn't mean you have chronic pain. What it does mean, though, is we need to start calling diseases as they are, not kind of making things up, so that we can actually uh, uh, provide the proper therapies for them the therapies that are actually going to help get people get better and avoid the stigma. Why is there a stigma between addiction? You know, why is it that for some reason it is horrible. you being an addict when we know that it destroys people's lives, destroys communities lives. And yet for some reason, we don't want to treat that effectively. I don't just don't understand it. It's, it, it just, just blows my mind. Yeah. But, um, and I like, there was another part in your even talked about it. You know, you can have pain and you can have addiction and you can also have pain with an addiction, it doesn't, yep. we don't have to treat, treat it any differently. That's the other part about that. Yeah. You know, particularly if you look, just look at the long term evidence with opioids, we know for chronic pain, they don't seem to work. So whether you have addiction or you don't have addiction, but you have chronic pain, we, there's no substantial body of evidence that really shows that opioids work well, that we don't have functional improvements. And I'm telling you like to just say this, if we're taking 80% of the world's opioids and we're only 4% of the world's population, if these drugs were actually helping people with chronic pain, we should have nobody on disability. Everybody should be dancing in the streets and we should have nobody complaining of pain because we're yeah. inhaling all of it. Yeah. But anyway, okay. I could a uh, very passionate topic t- t- here. And I- I'm so glad that you came on. Um, I'm trying to be cognizant of your time here. Uh, is, is there anything else that we didn't touch that you, you would like to kind of talk about a little bit more or what your experiences are with the sort of, you know, the addiction role?
1: Well, um, you know, I, I really appreciate your attention to this topic. Um, I, I guess the one thing, um, you know, I would extrapolate to is, you know, the realization that, you know, addictions are – even, even besides opioids, you know, let's talk about addiction to nicotine, addiction to alcohol, um, marijuana sometimes, certainly cocaine, uh, you know, the illicit opiates, you know, all these drugs. What, what's really true, and we know this has been demonstrated in the, in the literature epidemiologically several times, is that if you add all this together, the, these brain diseases are creating a huge amount of medical morbidity and mortality, the, the majority of premature illness and death is actually being treat, generated by untreated addiction. and uh, So what's happened in my view is that our, our country has made the mistake of understanding addiction as a criminal legal problem, not a biomedical problem. And what that has resulted in is a country that has attempted to incarcerate its way out of this problem rather than treat it. So we now have the largest um, proportion of uh, our citizenry behind bars compared to any country in the world. And it's having zero demonstrable impact, none, on reducing addiction. At the same time, you have a healthcare system that has grown very large uh, in an effort to treat the medical consequences of untreated addiction, and you name it. You know, it's cancer. Uh, half of all cancer deaths are due to nicotine addiction. Uh, it's heart disease. More nicotine. More uh, strokes. Could be cocaine. Um, there's, uh, you know, of course, all the overdose deaths and, and other, you know, infectious diseases that go with opioid addiction, including HIV, hepatitis C, uh, liver failure a com- complication of multiple addictions. So if you, you know, what, what, what's really happened in our country is kind of a domestic catastrophe, a mistake. Um, that I think we're now coming to reckon with that affects every sector of our economy um, and our well-being as a population. So, you know, I really appreciate, you know, you um, doing this important podcast and bringing your expertise uh, to it um, because I think, you know, the more um, experts in medicine as well as the public begins to grasp this, that It really is the only way we're going to hold the medical system and insurance companies and, quite frankly, our politicians to account uh, to change direction and, um, you know, reestablish behavioral health. Behavioral brain health is a core part of public health so we can reduce our prisons and, act frankly, make health care cost a lot less.
0: Absolutely. And uh, it improves so many different different aspects of it you know that, that's the i'm so glad you brought me up that up i think we're gonna to have to bring you up for another another episode here because that's All such right. a huge topic yeah um you know there was just that with the study when you're looking at life expectancy and they're finding that middle-aged white men are dying or you know we're not we're life expectancy is actually improving for everybody else except for middle-aged white men and a lot of it just is that you said it's it's this basis with this addiction and these chronic pain and dropping off and uh, yeah I'm gonna have to I'm I'm gonna talk to you after we're done here because there's so much more we could talk about all right well everybody thank you so much for joining us today Um, this is sort of different than a lot of the episodes you've done this is an extraordinarily important topic though I mean we we when we're looking at addiction and we're looking at the world of pain and the stigma that that is there that really shouldn't be there uh, again you can have pain you can have addiction you can have pain and addiction but we don't want to make kind of overflow all this stuff and, and, uh, call things what they aren't. And just, we just really need to change the way that we're treating all of it, to be honest with you. So until next time, stay well.